This is the One Thing Podcast, where we teach you the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. My name's Jeff Woods. I'm the vice president here at the One Thing team. Why is it that some people are able to achieve extraordinary results year after year when others work so hard and don't get the results they deserve? In this episode, we're going to be showing you how one thing can completely change your performance, the performance of your team, as well as provide everyone in your world with a greater sense of fulfillment and meaning. Whether you're a part of a team currently, whether you work virtually, or if you work for yourself, you're going to discover why purpose is the one thing for building great teams and how you can go about bringing it into your everyday life. The episode you're hearing today was from our One Thing monthly webinar series. Each month, we sit down with a best-selling author whose concepts are aligned with the one thing, all with the hope of helping you live your one thing at an extraordinarily high level. If you would like to join us for our next One Thing live webinar, head over to theonething.com. You can click on webinars and see who we have coming up and you'll be able to join us live. Our most recent guest is a nationally acclaimed international speaker, a longtime associate editor of Sports Illustrated and author of over 30 books, 11 of which have become New York Times bestselling authors. As an author, he's written books with, among others, Hall of Fame running back Walter Payton and UCLA basketball coach John Wooden. Throughout his writing career, he's developed a reputation as a world-class storyteller and has been invited as a guest on every major talk show from Oprah to Nightline and from CNN to Good Morning America. With that, let's get into this episode with New York Times bestselling author, Don Yeager. Eating healthy is an investment. It's an investment in yourself, but it also often requires an investment of your time. But good news is Factor has delicious ready-to-eat meals that are ever fresh and never frozen. They're chef-created, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With Factor, you can choose from a weekly menu of up to 35 options, including popular things like Calorie Smart or Keto Direction or Protein Plus or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover 60 more add-ons every week like breakfast on the go, lunch, snacks, beverages to help you stay fueled, feel good all day. And we know our listeners here at The One Thing are focused on health and health goals. That's why we choose to partner with Factor. And if you visit factormeals.com slash 150 and use code 150, you can get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Again, that's factormeals.com slash ONE50 and use code ONE50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Once a month, we come together over a webinar to feature a best-selling author, someone who um, we respect, who we love their content and feel that it is aligned with the ideas of the one thing as a way to simply bring more value to you. And today, we are having a great conversation with someone who has written many books, over 10 of them being New York Times bestsellers. He has spent time with some of the greats when it comes to the world of sports. When you think about John Wooden, when you think about Coach K from Duke, uh, and we're going to go through this today, he's had a chance to sit down with some of the most elite performers in the sports world and really understand what is it behind the scenes that allowed them to produce extraordinary results. And today we're going to be talking about why purpose is the one thing to build great teams. 
I'm going to share with you why we specifically reached out to Don Yeager today. There's this concept in the one thing of a domino run, right? Think about a time when you lined up a bunch of dominoes. If you lined them up correctly and you knocked that lead domino down, it knocked all the rest of them down. And the idea is that when you do one thing, the right thing, it topples over many things. You also know that in 1983, there was a researcher named Lauren Whitehead who published in the American Journal of Physics that a single two-inch domino did not just knock down a domino of equal size. It knocked one down that was 50% larger. So a two-inch domino could knock over a three-inch domino. A three-inch domino could knock over a four-and-a-half-inch domino, and it scales infinitely. In fact, by the 18th domino, that two-inch domino knocks over the Leaning Tower of Pisa. By the 23rd domino, that two-inch domino could knock over the Eiffel Tower. Now, how many of you have actually seen the Eiffel Tower in person? If so, put yes in the questions box. That thing is massive. We're not talking about the one in Vegas. We're talking about the real Eiffel Tower in Paris is a huge, huge structure. Just 23 dominoes in, a two-inch domino could knock down the Eiffel Tower. By the 31st, it looms 3,000 feet above Everest. And by the 57th domino, you could build a structure that would reach almost from the Earth to the moon. The idea here is that when you do the right activities consistently over time, it produces extraordinary results. So here's the idea. Most people, we know that no one succeeds alone, right? So let's ask a big question. What does it take to become the type of person who succeeds at an extraordinarily high level through others? That's a big question. In fact, we would suggest to you that's like the 57th domino, to be that type of a person. And if you ask the focusing question, well, what's the one thing I can do such that by doing it would make succeeding through others at an extraordinarily high level easier or unnecessary? You can whittle it down. Here's the challenge. Most people, when they try to narrow their focus, they only narrow it to roughly the 18th domino. Now, here's a visual. The Leaning Tower of Pisa. It's already leaning, right? All you got to do is push it over. Yet think about it. If you were standing in front of the Leaning Tower of Pisa, football gear on, and ran full steam at that thing, do you think you would be able to knock that structure over? Not a chance. Yet how many of us in our professions, in our relationships, in our finances are looking at the 18th domino and wondering why we are not making the type of progress we want to be making. It's because we're thinking big and we're acting big. The opportunity is to think big and to go small, to narrow your focus so small down to one thing that you can do such that by doing it would make everything else easier or unnecessary. That's the conversation we are going to be having here today. Because when you look at the seven circles, the idea of your spiritual life, your health, your personal life, your relationships, your job, your business, your finances, today we're going to be having a conversation in this business and job category. What does it take to become the type of person who builds great teams? And that's exactly why we have Don Yeager here today with us. He is a New York Times bestselling author, and he is an expert when it comes to what makes the great teams great. And we're going to be narrowing that focus. And our challenge for you today is to, as we go through the content, to ask the question, what would that action be that you can take such that by taking it consistently over time would lead to you succeeding through teams at the highest level possible. So with that, we are going to welcome our guest today, Don Yeager. And thank you very much. And I do have to tell you, um, I have, uh, I've had a lot of folks introduce or kind of prep a conversation for me in the past. 
nothing has got me as excited as uh, as uh, as a series of dominoes and the ability to knock over the Eiffel Tower. So thank you. Uh, this is this this is great. I appreciate uh, both the opportunity to be part of your community uh, today and the opportunity to get a chance to interact with you. Um, I'm a big that. fan big fan of the book, the project, and all that you all uh, endeavor to teach. And so, yes, thank you. And I'm excited to uh, to engage this group on the idea, as you said, about success through others, uh, succeeding through others. And what does it mean to build a team, an organization that just creates sustained excellence and the, and one that that is able to be to be great for the long haul. So uh, my journey on that, if if I if you want me to jump in, I'd, I'd love to. I can, yeah, I was going to say, give us a background of who you are and how you got to to this point today. Absolutely. So, yeah, I actually had a chance. Uh, I was a young sports writer coming out of college, and my father I was heading to my first newspaper job in San Antonio. My father really challenged me. He said, "You know, you need to you will get the opportunity as a journalist to just be in the presence of some really extraordinary winners uh, and learn from them, not just for your audience, but for you. What can you learn?" What can you take from each and every person you interview with? And and over the course of a 25-year career that included 12 years as a as a associate editor, which is just a fancy title for writer at Sports Illustrated, I had the opportunity to start building a career uh, studying great winners in the world of sports. As you mentioned, that led to a number of books. Uh, my 28th book comes out this fall. 11 of them so far have become New York Times bestsellers. I, I, I'm grateful for the success. Uh, and 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 hope that I gather the kind of success that you guys have had with uh, the one thing. What an amazing, what an amazing project and uh, game changer for so many. Yeah. But in all of that, yeah, all of that really led me to do. I retired from SI a decade ago. I do mostly corporate speaking engagements today, and I share with teams what it takes to become high performing as an organization and what I've learned from individual high performers on their personal pursuit of excellence. So kind of two different conversations. Awesome. And as I mentioned, you know, there's these, there's this conversation about what does it take to build a high performing team? And when, when Jeff and I were prepping to be with you today, we were talking a couple of weeks ago and he said, you know what, I'd really love if you'd tell that particular story to our audience. So I'm going to share with you that as I was learning or trying to decide what is it that takes, what is it that allows great teams to become so my first act was I sat down and I started actually writing out what were the teams and businesses, so sports teams and businesses that I would want to study because they created such excellence. And when I did, there was there was one team that kept coming up over and over again, and it was uh, it was a team that I argued maybe was the would be the greatest collection of talent ever to wear the same jersey. Really, if you want to look at at a particular organization uh, that that put just the best uh, in uh, in one jersey for the course of a period of time, it was the 1992 USA men's basketball team. They, you know, they were known uh, to the world as the dream team, right? And that team, actually, what what stood out to me was that they had, if you want to look at the requisite gifts or the skill sets of every great organization, they had everything you'd want in a great team, right? They had leadership, right? Both on the court and off. Everybody knew what to follow. They had an amazing depth. They were ready at any given time for a sudden change of environment. If if suddenly someone was injured or unavailable, the next person up was ready. They had great camaraderie, which does not, by the way, mean they all liked each other. This is not that's not the same thing. 
Uh, camaraderie at its root means that I respect what you bring to the organization, and I need what you bring to the organization, and I respect you for what you bring. And this team had great camaraderie. But I've had the chance to sit down and interview every player on that team to understand why they were able to be so extraordinary. And, and they came back to one answer, by and large. Uh, one answer that was the, the most dominant theme of what that organization stood for, and that was that that team understood its why. They knew why they had come together. They knew what their purpose was. They knew who they were in service of, and they knew why it mattered. They had the why at a centerpiece of everything they they, they aspired to be, and it, it obviously allowed them to be special. Well, that team was so good, uh, even its competition became its fans. I love this picture. This is the Lithuanian national basketball team uh, shortly after being beaten by 51 points. Right after that loss, they, the Lithuanians rushed to the USA sidelines so that they could take what was a 1992 version of a selfie, right? Uh, they wanted a picture to prove that they were on the same court with our players. Uh, but, and by the way, this wasn't a lousy Lithuanian team. They were actually the third best team in the world. That is them on the medal stand receiving their bronze medal. Third best team in the world. The United States was just 51 points better. Now, if you want to know what was wrong with Lithuania at that time uh, and, and in the world, uh, you just have to know that their players showed up in tie-dyed unitards for the medal stand. That's, that's everything. <laughs> but, the, but the picture that really stands out to me from this game is actually this one here. That's the Lithuanian team captain. He came to the game with the camera hidden in his sock so that during the game he could slide out, take pictures of his buddies and our players on the same court. Because, see, that's what happens when you build a really great team. Uh, ultimately, your opponent is reduced to sitting on the sidelines with a camera uh, taking pictures of you. So all of this was a driver for me as I tried to understand this team. And this team did everything that was expected of it. It went through the, that, that Olympic Games, won the gold medal by an average margin of 43 points. And no team in history has ever done anything close. But what happens after you win the gold or what happens after you've achieved the, your quota or whatever it is, some, some magical number that's been presented to you that said, here's what you have to do to, to declare success. What happens is they expect more from you the next year, right? Well, that team did win a 96 Olympics in the 2000 games. But in the, on the run up to the 2000 gold medal, they actually encountered that same Lithuanian team that they beat by 51 eight years earlier. And they beat the Lithuanians by two. And the Lithuanians had a shot at the buzzer to win. The world was catching up. The USA had, had become so completely full of itself and its belief in its excellence uh, that it wasn't necessarily doing the little things that had made it special. Mm -hmm. uh, it certainly wasn't focused on its sense of purpose, that why. And this completely unraveled in 2002. World Championships, right? It's a decade after the Dream Team. So just 10 years later, we go from the Dream Team to the 2002 USA World Championship team finishes sixth. Dream Team, sixth in the world in just a decade. Hmm. Now, over the years since I retired from Sports Illustrated, one of the places that I spend a lot of time working and is uh, on freelance work is the Wall Street Journal. They, they, um, they love to take lessons from sports, tie them to business, and actually try to make – and they have a one-page sports section every day they they offer up one page of sports but that sports is awfully filled with lessons from competitive uh, environments into uh, the world of sports and, and the wall street journal sports editor a couple of years ago called me said you know what we want to understand we know you're 
you're you're you're working in uh, doing some speaking and other writing today. But we want to know if you could take a team and what 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 allows a team to go from dream team, right? Dream team, best in the world, to sixth in the world just a decade later. And how do they find their way back? Well, when I took the assignment, my first stop was USA training camp and uh, basketball training camp in Las Vegas, where my first interview was with a man by the name of Jim Tooley. He's the CEO of USA Basketball. And I asked Jim, I said, you know, you've been in this role for 25 years. You saw the descent into that place where we were embarrassed to send all these all-stars to finish six. What happened? He said, I'll tell you exactly what happened. He said, uh, the awe factor was gone. The world used to be impressed with us. And pretty soon, the only people impressed were us, right? We didn't adjust. They caught up and we didn't adjust. And what a great lesson that is, right? Because that happens to a lot of us in business as well. We are riding high. We are doing well. And pretty soon we look around and we realize, man, we didn't make the adjustments when we had the chance and things changed. USA Basketball in that moment made a change. They went to a new executive leadership, a, a top level guy named Jerry Colangelo, who knew that his first responsibility was he had to add the right head coach. He needed a new head coach. And he decided that he wanted a head coach that would stay with the team for a long period of time, not just a couple of years, which had been the history of the organization. He wanted somebody who was going to be there for six or eight years. And everybody thought he'd get an NBA coach because all the players were NBA players. Jerry Clansville made a very unconventional pick. Uh, He chose as the new head coach, a college coach, a man by the name of Mike Krzyzewski. You referenced him earlier, Jeff. Coach K, right? Uh, He's the head coach at Duke University. And he said Coach K was the right guy for three reasons. The first is that this was an assistant coach. He was an assistant coach on the dream team. So he knew what it meant to manage all those egos. He understood what that took. The second reason, uh, he said, is that while he may be a college coach, he's not just a college coach. He's the probably the best college coach in basketball today alive in the men's game. And third and finally, he said, is that Mike Krzyzewski played his college basketball, and began his coaching career at West Point. Mike Krzyzewski understood what it meant to wear the letters USA stitched above his heart. Coach K came in as the new head coach, and he did what he would argue any of you should do, uh, those of you who who made notes in the question earlier that you're a business owner or that you're a manager or you're a leader. Uh, Coach K came in and he said, anything you should do in a transition moment is that you need to begin a uh, you need to begin with a listening session. You need to start asking people what they can teach you about what you're walking into. And when he did his listening tour, he said he came away with two big ahas. The first was that uh, that he believes every organization can essentially be divided your all your your entire employee pool can essentially be divided into two buckets. Now the first bucket are your Patriots, right? Those are the people that believe in what you're doing. They want to be part of it. They think it's important and they can't wait to help you achieve success. The second bucket are your mercenaries. And those are the people that are working for you until somebody offers them a dollar more. And in his assessment of things, uh, USA basketball was overloaded with mercenaries, right? We had too many players who were on the roster for the wrong reasons. And he needed to get sense of purpose. He needed to get that patriotic sense that you are here to be part of something bigger than yourself as a central piece of who they were. 
And so in his first go-round as the head coach, he actually took the team to the 2006 World Championships. And on the way there, he actually diverted our players and he took them to South Korea. He took our players to go live, eat, breathe, practice, um, sleep with young men and women who are also wearing the letters USA on their chest, but we're doing it for a far different reason. He wanted our players to appreciate that this is who they were representing when they went to play basketball with those letters stitched on their chest. And, and that moment was so impactful for them. He called it a feel it moment where you feel who you're in service of. And it was so impactful that our team began a new habit. Actually, it, during big moments, when, when things happened that were incredible during that tournament, our players didn't pound on their chest and celebrate themselves. They turned and looked for the first camera so that they could salute. They wanted to send a message back to the young men and women they had just spent time with to say thank you for teaching me what it means to be part of something bigger than me. Well, Coach K's second big aha is that these feel-it moments are what allow you to internalize your ability to be part of something bigger than yourself. It makes you come to work differently if you believe you're part of something big. If your why isn't just a phrase on the wall, but it's something that is felt within you, you come to, you come to play differently. But the challenge is that the, the, that moment is fleeting, right? It changes because you have roster changes. People leave your company. And so he said, what do we got to do? How do we? And he, he realized his second aha was he needed to create these feel it moments regularly. So the next year, he created a series of USA basketball dog tags that each one of our players wore year round. And he encouraged our players that when they were in an airport a hangar or a hotel lobby, and they encountered someone who was in service of the United States, he would he challenged our players to ask them if they could swap dog tags so that our players could remember that that's who they were playing for. And if you watched that basketball team as they made their way during the next decade, the last thing each player did as they took the court was they took the dog tags they collected from their neck they put them underneath their seat on a small towel because that's who that night was dedicated to. He began a process of bringing members of the Wounded Warrior in to talk to our players on a regular basis. He wanted our players to hear what it meant to be part of a team that cared for itself, cared for each other. He adopted a, a charity, a, a support organization called TAPS that brings children uh, whose parents, whose mother or father had been lost in Iraq or Afghanistan bring those children to USA basketball practices and games to engage with the players. And at the end of each practice, the players would line up at the free throw line, the, the, the children would line up at half court, and each child would get a chance to tell a short story about their mom or dad. Then they'd walk over and hand our players pictures of their, of their parents. And our, par- our kids, our, our, our players wore those pictures, the buttons, uh, throughout their basketball tournaments. And then while I was working with Coach on this story for the journal, he decided to take his team to his old stomping ground at West Point. At the end of that day, uh, while he watched these players uh, learn what it meant to become a member of uh, an officer in the United States Army, I asked Coach what he was attempting to do. And he said, you know what, without question, what I want was I want them to understand what it means to be in public service, what it means to truly care about those that you're in service of. I want to, what does it look like to be in selfless service, right? And I didn't want them just to put their toe in the water. I want them to do a cannonball, he said, 
Because when you're there, when you're in the presence of those you're in service of, you feel what you're doing. As a result, you feel deeper about being a representative of this organization. But the capstone, the, the one that everybody talks about, if you're involved with USA Basketball, you ask about this feel-it moments and how Coach K built this program. The one that everybody talks about is the 2012 Olympics. They're on the way to the games in London. And three days before they were scheduled to leave, Coach K asked the players together with him at Arlington National Cemetery. The day began with three of our players, Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, Kevin Durant, being given the opportunity to present the wreath at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And shortly after that, General Martin Dempsey, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, asked our players and their families if, he, if they would come with him and walk the grounds of Arlington to, ex, to, to, to look, to experience it. What does it mean? What, what does it feel like? And as our players are walking through, General Dempsey said, would you come with me a little further? I want to take you to Section 60. Section 60 of the freshest graves at Arlington. It's where the men and women who most recently given their lives for the protection of our country are laid to rest. And our players are walking past all these headstones, grave uh, with birth dates, younger than theirs, hometowns they recognized. And, and ultimately, they kind of settled in as a group, and there was very little being said. Nobody knew what exactly to say in general. And, and right about then, Mike Krzyzewski noticed that about 100 feet away, there was a young man standing amongst a group of graves. He was dressed in civilian clothes, but he had a crew cut. So Coach K assumed he was a member of the military. And, and he had a backpack slung over his shoulders. And as he moved from one grave to the next, he was reaching in the backpack, pulling out pictures, and he was laying them down. Coach K walked over. And he said, excuse me, sir, my name is Mike Krzyzewski. Um, I am the men's basketball coach for the USA Olympic team. And I'm wondering if you would share with me what you're doing here today. The young man looked back and he said, coach, I, I know who you are. This was my team. We had a mission and it didn't go as planned. And these are pictures of me and them in better days. And coach K said, sir, is there any way you would come talk to my players? And he did. He walked over and he stood in the middle of this collection of millionaires. And he started talking about what it meant to care for each other, what it meant to play for each what it meant to be part of a true organization that really was about team. And after a while, his conversation wandered into survivor's guilt. He admitted he wasn't there on the day the incident had happened, but he wished he had been. And about then he started crying. He couldn't stop. He turned around and he walked away. And Coach K leans in and he said, gentlemen, this is why we came here today. Because I want you to feel what it means to wear three letters on your chest. USA basketball team went to London and outside of the dream team, they had the second most dominant performance ever by an Olympic team. They destroyed the world, right? Because Mike Krzyzewski says every great team has a why. Every team represented on this call or in this session has a why. The best teams, the greatest teams feel that why, right? They don't just they don't just know it. It's not just said to them. They in they know who they're in service of because they feel it. And our job, our job organizationally and as a, as a collective is to help make our teams feel it. And that's when, when Jeff, when you challenged me to, to, to offer one thing, what's the one thing I learned while writing this book that separated the best teams from others? 
was the great teams know who they're in service of and they know why it matters, but they don't just know it, they feel it. And that ability to create that environment within your team, and there are many ways to do it, is what would separate the good from the best. After hearing everything Don just shared, what are your questions? Because I know certain ones just popped up and I've, I've got my own and I'll, I'll kick it off. What's the one thing someone can do such that by doing it would help make getting clarity on who you're in service of and actually feeling it easier or unnecessary? So I, I think is the, the one thing they could do right now, if they wanted to, is actually get into a conversation with your team. Who are we in service of? Why does it matter? And if we are, and, and what happens to them if we fail? And what makes this feel it moment work is that there's a face attached to it, right? There's, there's that child handing you a button. There's that soldier. There's that, it could be your customer who can say to you, you know what? Uh, my kid got into college because something you did helped make that happen. It's, it, and it may be a, a relationship to what you do that you're not even fully aware of, but it's being in touch with the people we're in service of to understand why what we do matters. And sometimes that as business owners or as leaders, we know that, right? We can, we can articulate it, but our team can't. And our goal, find out who is it that we matter to? What's the face? What, what would be the face that could represent that conversation? And then how do we make sure that everyone in the organization feels what we're talking about? What are some examples of corporate application? Because, you know, I think about our business, for example. Um, we create content that hopefully people can't live without and ultimately helps them take back control of their time and have clarity on how they want to invest it. It's easy to sit on this side of the mic or the camera, put it out into the world and just cross your fingers and hope that it's making a difference. It's another thing to see like Phil saying, where's the tissue box? And or for Lynn to say that she just loves this story so much. Like I get that feedback loop or on the rare occasion when we have an event twice a year where we get in the room with people. How have you seen organizations create that feedback loop so they get the feel it moment on a regular basis? Great question. And let me, I'll give you an example of one I shared with you when we were on our pre-call. So Medtronic is a medical device company, right? They make devices that are implanted in people's bodies that keep them alive. Yep. Diabetes, pumps, other things. The, the, the longtime CEO of Medtronic is, was one of those who I interviewed for the writing of this book because he managed to grow the size of his company from 10,000 employees to 40,000 employees and still be, still remain one of America's great places to work. And I asked him one day, I said, how did you, what was the key to, to continuing to have sense of purpose as such a high relevance point while growing so exponentially? Yeah. He said, I'll tell you one thing we did that was really a standout. We hold, a, hold an annual event, just like some of the events you're talking about here. And at that annual event, every year, we brought six families to the stage. We blocked out one hour six families to the stage. And those six families are together today because a Medtronic device was keeping one of them alive. Mm. And we let the families look at our employees and say, thank you. And he said, every year, without fail, some young woman took the microphone, looked at our employees and said, thank you. Because your device did what you promised, my daddy got to walk me down the aisle this summer. And he said, you know what? It didn't matter what role you had in the company, whether you were in maintenance 
or product development or accounts receivable, you felt like what we do matters because it because you saw it, right? You felt it. And then they took these families and they put them in the back of the room. And these families were lined up at tables and they autographed pictures like they were rock stars to the employees. And the pictures hung all over the building. And and but they did it every year. This isn't a one-time event. They did it every year. They tried to say who, and but it's a real key to that's to this story, real quick. And that's that the Medtronic doesn't sell to families. They sell to doctors and hospitals. That's right. But families are their downstream beneficiaries, right? The families are who is ultimately impacted by the quality of their work. And that's the face they wanted to look at. Not the doctors who say thank you for the discount you gave us. We made a greater profit. They wanted the families who were held together. And so that's what I challenge these those listening to think about is where would that concept be for us? What who are we impacting? Who are we who would not be whole if not for our efforts? And then somehow link that opportunity to feel their grace, their gratefulness within your organization. I, a few examples that I got to witness that I thought were, uh, they, they made a real impression on me. First was um, my past medical device sales company that I worked for. Every year at our national meeting, the people who won President's Club, the company had gone to the families and the families recorded videos thanking their husband or their wife for all that they do to provide for the family and the kids. And I mean, there wasn't a dry eye in the room and it really made us reflect on why are we getting out of bed every day? You know, who are we really doing it for? It's 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 our family. And to see that video, even if it wasn't your family on the screen, right. absolutely hit home. And the other that I got to witness was um, at Keller Williams. They are a profit sharing company and they've the, the amount of money that's gets given away to charity is huge. And every year at family reunion, they do an inspirational brunch where they show, they bring some of the people up on stage and interview them and tell their story and then present them with a check that makes a massive difference in their world. And you get to see it live in person. And it's just that little feedback loop, just one time a year, carries you through the rest. So I know you got, there, there are folks who might be have, might have questions. I will tell you, there, in, in, to finish off your conversation, there are yeah. three, three ways that feel it comes to play three three areas that you can consider number one is around your product right and that's the that's the Medtronic type device right where they're where they are where they can where your product truly impacts the and has an outcome on people right the second is your community right and that's when you're talking about Keller Williams the opportunities to be able to say here's how because we organizationally are successful we are able to do X in our community important community. And the third one is around your teammates. Like, what do you do for your, what does it feel like to be in service of each other, right? What does that mean? I I own a couple of small companies in Tallahassee, Florida. We do an event every quarter where we pick an employee and we let them pick something we, that would matter to them for an afternoon. And we will do it to, to collectively as a group. You know, uh, last year it was hot as Hades, and we we went out and we walked a street because one of our employees has a has a road that he's that he cleans up every month in the name of a relative of his who passed away, and we as a team walked and cleaned that road for him, 
And then afterward, we got to sit together as a group and and drink margaritas. And he told us stories about this person. And it was just really impactful because the team now feels like they're part of something bigger than themselves. And that's where, so it's, it's product, community, teammate are three specific ways you can create feel-up moments within your organization. Yeah, and I, and I will share for the people who, how many of you who are here live are a part of Living Your One Thing? Put a yes or a question mark. Uh, yes, if you are, question mark if not. If you're interested, this is our training community where we help you think and act in order of priority. And a lot of this is founded in purpose so that you can help your people get what they want in their personal life and their professional life. Go to the onething.com slash membership and you can learn more about it. It's super affordable and really powerful. That's the onething.com slash membership. Part of the reason on the 411, which is our tool for helping you clear down your priorities, there's the professional goals and there's the personal. Because for those of us as leaders, when every week you sit down with your direct reports and you have a direct sight into their personal priorities that they feel comfortable sharing with you, and your job is to help them get what they want, do you think they leave your world? Not likely, right? No. Uh, you know, uh, there was a great question from Thorne. He said, you know, his profession is fashion and it's not exactly known for teamwork. So for all of those people who are not in an industry where teamwork is naturally fostered, what's that two-inch domino that they can knock over that if they knocked it over consistently would lead to a greater sense of purpose and teamwork? Well, I got to believe that even in a world like fashion, I mean, you know, that there's there's little that truly ends up as the final product that the person at the front end did all the work in between here and there, right? So while they may not be officed as a team or they may not think of themselves as a team, the truth is, what does it take? If you, if you were to actually try to draw the line between concept and, and, and final product, what does it take to make all that is your team? And oh, by the way, I mean, Tiger Woods may be playing golf individually, and maybe he's not our example of the, of the moment, but the team that surrounds people playing individual sports is just as important to them as the team that surrounds USA basketball. They, they may not get the same credit or the same, but very, I, I, I know almost no one who plays at a really high level that does it all by themselves. Mm-hmm. There, there is a team. You just have to know what that team is. And often, Someone has to begin the conversation that we want to think like, I'd like to think of you as my teammate. I get that what I do stops here, you pick up here and you move, you move the ball there or whatever it is. But I'd like, but if you can begin that, we are better when we operate as a team in any environment, doesn't matter uh, whether it's, it's fashion or, or, or sports that any, in any environment, we're better when we when we operate as a team. Well, I think you're touching on I think one of the biggest challenges when people start living the one thing and they start using a 411 to act in order of priority, they quickly realize that their one thing for this week depends on other people and it may not be their one thing. It's competing priorities. So you've got silos and organizations and everybody has their own competing priorities. How do you, in spite of that, foster a sense of team and community so that together you can succeed? Well, again, 
you know, the, the truth is on almost every team, there are silos and competing interests, right? There, there are things that would make me look big or bigger if I achieve them than, than, and at least I would think they make me look bigger to the world than if the team collectively achieves something great. So it's, it's around that ability to have open and healthy conversation around what is it we want to achieve? What is it that collectively we can achieve? Because there's, first off, I, I'm going to guess that in everybody and anybody that's, that's deep enough into the one thing concept understands the science around this. There, there's lots of it that when people believe they are part of something bigger than themselves, they show up differently, right? They show up more responsibly. They show up with, with enthusiasm uncommon uh, to other moments. And so our job is to collectively decide. And, and sometimes we as leaders think everybody knows what the, what the big hairy goal should be and why it is that it matters. And if we assume that, but we don't communicate that, we have failed. And so I think a big piece of this is you're right, competing interests and all those things are true, and they're, but they're just as real in a sporting environment as they are in any other team out there. Mm-hmm. But the key is how do you get everybody to put those things aside and you do it by having open and honest dialogue. Yeah. And, and a suggestion that we've observed just from working with a number of people is it comes down to the communication, right? My one thing is X. I recognize that that may not be your one thing. Can you help me understand where this falls on the priority list so I can set expectations correctly and possibly support you in achieving your one thing? Exactly. The language, the communication. Lynn asked a great question. Uh, what are your suggestions when teams are virtual? You're, you don't you don't see each other very regularly, maybe only once or twice a year. How do you foster that sense of team, purpose, connection? Uh, I think it's, I mean, it's the most difficult challenge. I, I actually, uh, one of my clients was asking me that question. They've got more and more virtual uh, employees or virtual teammates. And, 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 uh, and so how do you keep people engaged and, and focused and driven in the same direction when they can be, uh, they, they can, they could tell you that they're online paying attention, but the truth is they're texting and they're checking seven other things going on around them because they're not sitting right in front of you. I, I do think that's that's the the real challenge here comes back to that trust, accountability, and and communication. The three things you talked about early, right? Which is, you know, do they know why? Uh, and and what do they think the answer to the question is? So rather than telling people what our purpose is, my first recommendation, and I said this right off the bat when you asked me, is that you ask those who are on your team. Why, why do you think what we do matters? Don't tell them why it matters. Ask them why it matters. And begin, you know, even virtually, if we can convince them that, if we can convince people that there's a sense of, uh, of opportunity for us to do something collectively that we couldn't do independently, what you'll find is that people, uh, again, this is all research and science-based, People, by and large, want to be part of that. So we, our job is to share with them. I know we don't get a chance to interact. I know I, I probably will never see the inside of your home, 
um, other than maybe the back of whatever's whatever's on the screen behind me. But I I I'd love to understand like what what drives you? What why are, why does this matter to you? Why do you do you do this? Is it is it just because of the paycheck? And that that's not always the wrong answer too. It's important to know what drives people. I have I have one of my employees who is one of the most coin operated human beings I've ever met, and I'm okay with that because I know what drives her, and that's good, right? But not everybody on your team can be uh, can be fully purposed. So Adam Wolf asked a question, and I'm going to tweak it a little bit based on what you just said. Is it a leader's responsibility to provide the why? Is it their responsibility to provide the make it feel it moment? Is so, it to give it to them or to help them self-discover it themselves? So I would argue that your best moments would be ones that they discover in, in you know, w- while working through this question together, right? Yeah. But the truth is, the moment I just gave you, the, the story I just shared with you about Coach K, that is an important part of what he argues. You know, drawing up X's and O's on a basketball court, really important. Obviously, really, he has to do that. But he thinks of this as as important as any piece of his leadership of that team as as he has finding and creating these moments. It's, these are intentional acts led by leaders who want people to get that sense of of bigness. And so, yes, I do think this is a this is largely a leadership discussion around the creation of those moments, the belief that the moments matter, maybe the suggestions of how the moment might come to be should come from all of us. Because at the end of the day, we are better if we feel it. Yeah. So Adam, my challenge to you, you know, I've went on a road to forming a power habit around asking great questions. I would encourage you, Adam, to spend five minutes, 10 minutes writing down all the questions you could ask your people it would help them self-discover why they're doing what they're doing or questions you can ask yourself on experiences, exercises you can do that would foster the feel-it moment. Absolutely. I think you'll be amazed what you come up and, and the crazy part is that, you know, Jeff, I think you, again, you and I had this conversation. Anybody can do it. Every, it doesn't matter. When I say up there, every team has a why. It's because I truly believe that every team has a why. There is a there's a purpose. There's a reason. Every, uh, it doesn't matter whether you're in the delivery service for laundry at hotels in you know in Las Vegas. And and I recently spoke to a group that had somebody in the audience who came up to me afterwards and said, "This is what I do. There's no why in that." I was like, "Are you kidding me? What would happen?" To all of those hotels, what would happen to all the people that put those sheets on beds? What would happen all if you failed? If you stopped what you were doing? If you uh, delivered at, at, at something less than your best? Oh, I never thought about all those people. Well, that is ultimately who you're in service of. It's not the company that pays you to deliver sheets. It's the people that put them on. Yeah. Flipping that, an interesting experience I had. I shared this on a previous podcast, but I remember I was at a conference and I was with a mentor and we had uh, gone to the bathroom and I remember washing our hands and I was about to walk out the door and I noticed he wasn't following me. 
And I turned around and looked, and he was waiting for the janitor who was cleaning the bathroom to turn around. And when he did, he said, excuse me, sir. And the janitor kind of looked at him a little confused. And he said, has anybody told you that you're appreciated today? Mm. And I looked at him so confused and said, excuse me, in very broken English. And he said, has anybody told you that you're appreciated today? The man just looked at him and said, no. He said, well, I appreciate you. Thank you for doing what you're doing. And I think this is the first time I've been able to tell that story without crying. And I would challenge every single one of you. This is, it's hard to actually do this, to find one person and to do that exact same thing with them. That will give them a sense of purpose in doing what they're doing, which will therefore give you a sense of purpose by simply existing. And, and, and there's fuel in that that people can live off of for days. Mm-hmm. He probably will remember that for the rest you're of telling us, You're telling the story years later, right? Still am. Yep. And what's interesting is um, how irregularly I do it. Such a simple concept that I did not make a commitment to forming a habit on. I was blessed to have the opportunity to work for 12 years with John Wood, who I know is um, many of your listeners and readers probably are, are familiar with. Coach Wooden, greatest coach of all time. Coach Wooden, in the 12 years I worked with him, we would go to dinner every other month. I would go to California for a day and we and it always ended with dinner, always at the same place. Uh, and we almost always had the same waitress, right? Mm. Uh, but every time he saw her, he found something new to compliment her about. And I thought that was just amazing, right? This guy is there for years, but he always, you know what? Your hair looks just a little brighter today. I don't know what it is that you did this morning. I, I don't, but man, that's beautiful. I hope you do it again tomorrow. And that woman would walk on air as she walked away from the table and she'd been serving John Wooden for years. Right. That's awesome. So go there. I mean, you get a chance to sit down with somebody like a John Wooden. What are the habits that you saw of people at that level that really made an impression on you? I think uh, maybe the greatest habit that I watched among all of those folks was the, the habit of presence. Right. The, um, the understanding that what we're doing right here, right now, uh, matters, matters more than, you know, we can't, we can't change what happened. We can't change what will happen next necessarily, but what we can most impact is what we're doing right now. Are we present? Are we present in conversations? Are we present in, in meetings? Are we present uh, with our children? Right? The ability to be present was what fascinated me because they have so many things coming at them as often as busy as we think we are. Imagine people play sometimes at their levels, what's coming at them and the ability to lock in, lock down and be present fascinated me among the highest performers of all. Hmm. My question for you who's listening to this is where's one place in your life that you are currently not being present And if you were able to suddenly develop the habit of being present in just that one area, everything else in your life would become easier or unnecessary. I'll share with you, this was the second 66-day challenge that I went on after starting this company. I first did a a habit for my business, which was checking my 411 before I checked my email (laughs) and check my priorities before everyone else's until that was a habit. 
And then I realized I needed to form a habit for my marriage because I told myself the story that just because I was in the room with my kids and checking email that I was being a good dad. And the habit was if I could simply, when I walked in the door, if I could take this bad boy and put it down. That was the two-inch domino that knocked over consistently led to me not taking phone calls, led to me not working after 5 p.m., led to me actually being present. It was pretty interesting. I love it. Charlie asked, what's one question you always ask to learn about someone? So I, the one question I have asked of nearly 3,000 winners and you know, in the world of sports and business over the course of my career is if you could name one habit that you developed or one thing that you worked to develop that you believe separated yourselves from others, what would that habit be? Because I think in the answer to that question, if I could understand whether where the habit they valued told me what they valued told me what they, what, you know, what, what mattered to them. And, uh, and I kept a, I actually kept a series of notebooks over the, all those years that was, that, that reduced the answer to that question from almost 3000 winners. And that was, uh, that was a big piece of what kind of drew me out of sports illustrated into public speaking was the discussion around high performance and what did they do differently? And that, that, so that was my one question. Um, Amazing. That I think made a big difference. Well, share a little bit about your book that you have coming out here shortly. Oh yeah, I have a do. I have a book. My next oh, yeah, book. Oh yeah, that one out. thing. <laughs> do what? That one thing. That one thing. That one thing that will come out in December. I'm uh, I'm finishing a book right now, due in two weeks, with uh, Joe Namath, the great quarterback of the New York Jets. Uh, this next Super Bowl in January is the 50th anniversary of the game he won in which his team was a complete underdog. And just the lessons he has learned, especially in the last 15 years, in healing himself, making himself a, a more complete man, is a, um, it's, it's, a it, it's one of the most powerful stories I've ever been challenged to tell. So very excited by it. Well, if people want to learn more about you, Don, how can they learn about all your other books and speaking and all that? I would, I'd be honored to stay in touch. Uh, my, my, my website is donyeager.com, D-O-N-Y-A-E-G-E-R.com. And, uh, and I, you know, people who, who think as those who are in this conversation and are part of your community, you know, we try to develop content there just as, just as you all have, Jeff, that is, it's inspirational. It's, it's meant to kind of get you, uh, get you ready for your day and your opportunity to compete. And so I'd love it if, uh, if anyone on this call or this session where you get a chance to stay in touch, I'd be honored. Yeah, and uh, I know a lot of us are like to consume our content listening. Uh, if you are not yet an Audible customer, you can go to audible.com slash one thing. That's audible.com slash one thing. Or if you want to text uh, the word one thing to the number 500-500, Audible will give you a, three, a free 30-day trial and you'll get a credit and you can just search for Don Yeager and find any of his books that he has on Audible and, and go there or go to Amazon, type in Don Yeager, you'll see all of them. So Don, thank you so much for the time today. I, I mentioned this to you in the, in the pre-interview, but as behind the scenes, we're working on the next book based on the one thing and at the heart of it is purpose. Purpose, right? exactly. Purpose. Well, how do That's we find fine. fulfillment in what we do and why we do it? So thank you very much for the time, my friend. I really appreciate you. And I look forward to staying in touch. Jeff, thank you. 
Well, there you have it. Our conversation with New York Times bestselling author Don Yeager as a part of our monthly One Thing webinar series. We would encourage you to head over to theonething.com, click on webinars and see who we have coming up. And we would strongly encourage you to get a copy of a 66-day challenge calendar. If you are not in the middle of a 66-day challenge, you have an opportunity to acquire a power habit that could truly change the trajectory of your life. And based on this episode, it could be around bringing purpose into what you do, into building a better team who delivers higher performance. All you got to do is ask the question, what's the one thing I can do such that by doing it would make achieving X easier or unnecessary and keep whittling it down till it's a two inch domino that you can knock over that if you did consistently day after day after day over time would create a habit that would unleash extraordinary results in your life. Purpose is a topic that is very near and dear to our hearts. Like we mentioned, we're going to write a book on it. It's going to be our next book based on the one thing, and it's going to be all about purpose and how you bring it into your life. We hope that this episode served as a chance for you to pause, to take a step back and identify the areas of your life where you can be asking, why am I doing what I'm doing? Who am I in service of? How does what I do help others get what they want? We'd love to hear your feedback. If there's something that has moved you in this episode, please leave a review on your podcast player of choice and specifically mention this episode with Don Yeager and what your big takeaway was. This will come directly to us, so we will see your feedback. And it's also a way for us to reach more people. So for example, we know that from a past episode, the one with Keith Cunningham, For example, we know that B.T. Sully, after listening to the episode with Keith Cunningham, started listening to an episode a day, reading a chapter of The One Thing a day, and began a 66-day challenge of what they call 30 Minutes in the Mind, where they sit down with a time block and ask a big question. And they shared that it has given them so much more clarity, and they know that it's just the tip of the iceberg. BT Sully, thank you so much for leaving that review. We really appreciate it. And folks, sincerely, we mean it. We want to hear how you are implementing this and how you are living the one thing. Leave a review on your podcast player choice. Mention this episode specifically with Don Yeager and hopefully we'll have a chance to give you a shout out in a future episode. If you're not yet subscribed to the show, please click that subscribe button so all future episodes automatically come. Download the 66-Day Challenge calendar and if you'd like to join us on this journey, consider joining us in living your one thing at theonething.com slash membership. Thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being with you in the next episode. 